Good afternoon and welcome to the Healthy Indoors Show. I'm your host, Bob Krell. I'm uh, founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine. And uh, as always, we are uh, really happy to have you joining us both live and through our recordings on uh, the uh, Vimeo portal through our healthyindoors.com site, as well as our podcast, also available at healthyindoors.com. So today's topic is sustainability, racial justice, and healthy environments. I think it's a very timely topic and uh, something that it's, it's, it's been in my mind in my entire time in the career for 34 years in the indoor environmental industry, um, you know, having worked uh, throughout, throughout the U.S. really in the term of my career, uh, working in both housing, uh, public housing, uh, multifamily, um, and properties really just of all different uh, demographic and economic levels around the country. And uh, one thing seems to be a common thread, and we've had this with previous guests on the show, there, there seems to be uh, a preponderance of uh, some of the under, underserved communities in our country that seem to be experiencing some of the, uh, the, the lower ends and the, and the worst uh, problems within the indoor environments and the healthiness of their indoor environments. You know, so Suzanne Shelton uh, will be joining us today. She's one of our guests and uh, she, um, she uh, did a blog uh, a couple of weeks back that really caught our attention. Um, and we'll, we'll share the link with that after the show, but it got us thinking about how uh, sustainability and healthy environments, you know, uh, a lot of times seems to be uh, the industry in general seems to be associated with white companies and white individuals and uh, people of color, uh, you know, have a tendency to uh, be living and working in unhealthy environments in the United States. And we're talking in terms of the U.S. right now, uh, but this certainly, uh, you know, could be equated to other other uh, parts of the globe. So, you know, we believe that this is a pivotal time to be, uh, you know, talking about this, uh, you know, in the society. And, you know, this is a time where I think this is a you know, it's, yes, it's a, a somewhat emotionally charged and politically charged conversation, but it's long overdue. And so to that end, uh, joining us today um, is uh, Suzanne Shelton. She's the president and CEO of the Shelton Group, the nation's leading marketing communications agency, which is focused exclusively on sustainability. She leads the Shelton Group in creating a marketing advantage for organizations that are creating sustainable futures, uh, such as Eastman, Ecolab, Environmental Defense Fund, Mattel, and many others. Uh, she's had over 30 years experience under her belt, and she's a pro at helping her clients brand, uh, brand affinity marketing products and starting movements. She speaks regularly at conferences, guest writes for the likes of Fast Company, Green Builder and Green Biz, and has been quoted in Forbes and the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post and other top media outlets. And most recently she'll be in a uh, featured, her blog will be featured in the upcoming issue of Healthy Indoors Magazine, which is actually uh, com coming out in a couple of days. So uh, we actually held up our, our, our production cycle to be able to get that in there and be able to discuss this important topic. Uh, later on uh, in the show, uh, uh, we'll be also joined by Dr. Uh, Lilia Abron. Uh, she's the president and CEO of Peer Consultants, and we'll do a full uh, bio and introduction of uh, Lilia when she actually uh, joins us. And with us in the co-pilot seat, again, uh, Hayward Scores Healthy Building Scientist, the ever-present Joe Medosh. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I just want to go on record to say that, you know, we did not find this to be like uh, one of those uh, email or that you get from your carpet cleaners as to that they're also you know, behind Black Lives Matters. That's not our intention. We think that we have a great voice to talk about some of the challenges that go along with low income and equality and some of the issues that are um, redundant in their lives that have, make it really challenging for them to overcome. So we think there's a lot of great topics that 
uh, intertwine with our industries as to what we can do to be more sensitive to those conditions. Yeah, and, and what's interesting too is uh, the Billing Performance Association, I thought um, published a very uh, forward thinking uh, position paper a couple of weeks back. And I was really proud to be, you know, ha have the opportunity to be working with that group. Um, and I think, I, I think their uh, CEO, uh, Steve Slodak actually, you know, it, it was it wasn't just puffery and it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just something that was put up there you know to just try to chime into black lives matter i think it was it was meant in all earnest uh and uh and i i again welcome every organization uh to get on board this very important issue so to that end uh so Suzanne, I'm going to ask you. Let's just talk about your your blog for a second because you know you you raised the, you raised the perspective coming you know you're you're a woman in industry, which again is in, in you know challenging right at times. But you're a white woman, so your perspective you know as Joe and I are white men, so you know we we're never going to have the perspective of uh, somebody from a person of color and somebody that's in an underserved community. So right. So t um, tell us what tell us what prompted you to write that blog and really what your driving issues were there. Well, let me take a couple of steps back and then I'll answer your question. And then I have a question for you guys. Um, okay, so our work is entirely in sustainability, and about seventy percent of our work is in in the built environment. Um, so we've been tracking consumer perception of indoor air quality and does it matter and what are they doing about it? And we've seen a trend in the upward right trajectory that, that more and more Americans are concerned about their indoor air quality. They, they want it to be good, duh. Um, and more and more Americans say that they're taking action to improve their indoor air quality. Obviously, we're going to continue to see that go in an upward right direction thanks to COVID. Um, okay, so we have all that going on. The other thing, though, that we've got going on is in our work for big corporate, um, big corporate America, we do what we call ongoing fringe consumer listening. So we are out in the social media sphere listening to, I mean, deep out there topics and folks um, as it relates to, you know, sustainability type of issues. And, um, you know, an example of this is many years ago, fringe consumers were concerned about plastics in the ocean, not because we were um, destroying marine life, but because they were worried about the toxins that are now in our food stream. Um, and that work many years ago allowed us to kind of send off some warning flares with folks in the plastics industry that, man, this is real. Y'all are gonna have to get in there and start focusing on cleaning this up because this is gonna become outrage that's gonna lead to deselections and, um, and regulation and all that sort of stuff. And sure enough, that's exactly what's happened, right? Um, so, so now Americans are actually more concerned about plastics in the ocean than they are about climate change. And they're worried about climate change. It's not like, oh, well, I don't really care much about that. So yeah, I care a little more about plastics. No, these are, these are the front burner uh, environmental issues for Americans and plastics in the ocean is at the top of the list. So we've been out listening um, to a whole range of sustainability issues. And what I can tell you is, you know, long before COVID, we, we saw fringe consumers, uh, fringe Americans, kind of advocating for blowing up the system. You know, the system doesn't work. The man doesn't work. Government doesn't work. Corporate America doesn't work. Like it just, it doesn't work. And, and this really isn't about politics. You've got people that are deeply conservative and deeply liberal sure. coming at this. And the yeah. way they might manifest how it should change is different. But mm -hmm. the belief that it, it's all screwed up and it just needs to, it needs to be blown up. Like we need to have anarchy and we need to blow it up and start over. That's been out there for a while. And so COVID hit. And, and what we saw is 
that that conversation started to become mainstream really fast. And so we started intensely tracking that through March and April, and we published a report on it basically saying, there is this idea that's getting traction in the mainstream, which is the system doesn't work and it needs to be blown up. And so corporate America, there's an opportunity here for leadership. If you really plant your flag on what you stand for as a company for people and the planet, um, you have an opportunity to lead and, um, and position yourself well for the future because Americans are now looking for where should I get my information from? Who in the world can I trust? I mean, y'all see the, the blankety blank show coming out, of, uh, coming out of Washington, right? I mean, it's like, who, who do I trust, right? How, what? They contradict themselves all the time. And then look at the blankety blank show that's happening across our country right now. Like, oh, we've just reopened and magically it's going to be fine and it's not fine, right? I mean, it's like, who in the world do we count on and who is the voice of authority? So, so mainstream Americans are onto that and going, man, our system doesn't work. We got we to gotta change that. So that's some of the stuff that we've really been, been tracking. And it's just been kind of stunning to us to see how this mainstream idea, I'm sorry, this fringe idea became mainstream. And then, and then George Floyd was murdered. And, and then it like all went to the next level. I mean, so what we have seen happening in the streets is a direct manifestation of kind of this fringe thing we've been, we've been tracking for the last six to 12 months and kind of going, uh Oh, this is, this is really going somewhere. And then boom, it's, it's become mainstream. And so um, I, you know, as, as a human being, not as a researcher or a marketer, I, I do happen to think what's happening in our world right now does need to happen. Maybe I, Maybe I'm a fringe uh, consumer who's become mainstream too. I, I think we do need to change a lot of things. I think what COVID-19 has laid bare is just all the social inequities, all the inequality and how, how our system doesn't work. I mean, our system is completely based on all of us buying more stuff all the right. time. Constantly growth, growth of the gross national product. Right. And all of our, yeah. so many of our jobs are dependent on that. If you right. look at all the people that were immediately furloughed and laid off, it, it's folks that are all dependent on us going out and buying stuff you know, uh, going go to restaurants, having tourist experiences, buying stuff. Um, and, you know, that is inherently unsustainable. And then you look at the folks who were laid off and just how on the edge so many folks are living and that there is no savings to rely on. And, you know, we've seen a lot in our, again, in our social media tracking where the $1,200 checks everybody got, it's laughable. Like, oh, really? B big, rich elected official, you think that $1,200 is going to solve my problem? Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, For this about, week? Wait, Right, exactly. <laughs> well, that, yeah, the other one is that people want to stay on unemployment because they have an extra $600. They're like, whoa, $600. I'm doing great to stay home. So that is actually kind of a shocking small number to change your life and want you to not get a job. We, we've seen that. It, it, so anyway, this is what's been going on in the greater context. We've been doing a lot of advising of our clients around this. And then I think, you know, for, for me, like so many Americans, George Floyd's death was, was a huge wake-up call for me personally. Um, and I, I, I will tell you, I feel embarrassed to say that uh, as someone who, um, who is in business to help companies do better for people and the planet and then tell their stories around that. Of course, I was aware of systemic racism. Of course, I was aware of social inequity. But there is something, I think there is something just so jarring about the fact that it's one more time and just how graphic it is and, um, and that we just keep letting it happen. Um, that, that me, like, like so many people have had an awakening. And so the, the blog post that you're referring to, I, I think is, um, you know, some, some soul searching on my part about what, what can we do? Those of us as, as um, business owners and particularly small business owners, what can we do? And what I've come to realize is, you know, my, my company is in Knoxville, Tennessee. We work in sustainability, which is also very white, by the way. Um, and, you know, we, we, 
like almost never get um, get resumes sent in when we run an ad looking to hire somebody. We almost never get resumes sent in uh, from from black people. I have folks on my team that are Indian and Chinese, but but the the black uh, community doesn't tend to respond to our ads. And so again, I'm embarrassed to admit this. What I have done is kind of shrug that off, like. Well, you know, we're in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're like 90% white. What, what do you expect? You know, and we're in sustainability, which is also really white. What do you expect? Uh, right. So I now realize what total bullshit that is. And mm-hmm. you know what? We're doing this all wrong. We are not casting a wide enough net. We are clearly not actively trying to recruit. And, and I mean, what bullshit? We, we advise the Fortune 500 who have to go out and serve a cross-section of humanity. And we're coming to them every day with a very white perspective. We're not coming to them with a holistic perspective. So if we're going to do what we do as well as we say we do it, we have to be able to bring all those perspectives to the table. So, um, so I have had a real awakening and I am uh, personally working to change some of that. And I, I think that's some of what a lot of you listening are faced with. A lot of you listening are small businesses. You may only have a handful of employees if you have employees at all. And what I'm here to tell you is you're going to have to proactively work if, if it's important to you um, to, to include people of color, people of all different walks of life, um, then you're going to have to proactively work to do it. And I would, I would actually tell you that you should do that because of exactly the things you started with, Bob. A lot of what we need to do in terms of home performance and indoor air quality um, is targeted at, at um, lower income and disproportionately black um, homes and housing. And my God, how in the hell are we supposed to go in and understand these people's lives and what help they need if, if, we, if we can't really walk in their shoes? I mean, why, why wouldn't we want people of color on our team so that they can go into these homes and go, I'll tell you what they need. I mean, I grew up with this. I'll tell you exactly what they need. You know, so we must work to, to get um, more people of color in this industry. And so that's yeah. my question for you guys. What's in our way and why aren't we there today? You know, and, and, and this argument, it's not just for the sustainability, you know, the, so, you know, you're referring to the sustainability and I'm going to cast that net over weatherization and yeah. as, and, and building performance, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk to my 34 years in the indoor environmental community, the IAQ community. It's the same thing. Predominantly white male owned businesses. Yep. Okay. That's the perspective. That's, that's what's there as you see at the conferences, you know, yep. very few people of color, very few women owned businesses mm-hmm. for that, for that matter. Um, it, it, at least in the sectors that I, I've seen in my career and um, you, you know, <sighs> So the perspective, my, my fear is, and I don't know how we fix this because, because again, I speak to myself because I was a consultant and contractor in the industry for many years, right? 30 plus years. Um, and I, I, my, I've worked from multi, multi-family housing, you know, section eight housing, all the way up to multi-million dollar single family residences to corporate work. And, you know, so I, I, tr- I tried to feel like I had uh, I had the perspective, but I don't. I don't. I truly don't have that per- the perspective of what it's like to actually live in that environment. I, do- I don't get that, and right. I-, I can't even begin to. And, right. and the-, the problem is, I think there's a common thread here. I don't know if you'll agree. Um, you-, you know the uh, the sustainability issues, the energy issues, the the problems that we're having with climate change and global warming. COVID nineteen is in- at least in part a result of some of the climate change and the climate warming and animals jump, you know, diseases that are in the animal kingdom jumping to the human side because we're, we're destroying habitats. I mean, this all yeah. ties together. Right. Yes. Frankly, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, and the, and the George Floyd thing, which I'm like horrified. I mean, just, but, but that's just, that's one incident that we got to see right. on video. This has been happening since right. our history. This is right. not something new. 
we all are pissed off about it, but you know what? We should have been pissed off a long time ago, but we can't go back. So here we are. And I think this is a moment in the time for action. And I got, I'll get off my soapbox. Uh, it, it points out to us, you know, at Healthy Endures, we looked at this and, you know, we've been seeing this this systemic problem in the underserved communities in their indoor environments, the healthiness of their indoors. And Kevin Kennedy has been a guest a bunch of times. He, you know, he works in that, you know, in, in that area a lot, you know, in in uh, 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 lower, lower economic, socioeconomic housing. Underserved. Yeah, underserved. You know, it just, you know, in, in areas, you know, dealing with people that really are in really unsuitable living conditions. Right. Um, and this all kind of ties together, you know, there seems to be a common thread here. How, but if, if we were able to bridge this gap, wouldn't it be amazing if the person who came to assess your home was also black? Wouldn't that exactly. be a great role model to be like, hey, I'm here to check out your home. I'm the one who's knowledgeable to help you learn more about this and fix your home. And how many people will be looking at them as like, oh, my gosh, I could do that, too. That's right. where we need to get to is that that level of that. You know, it, it, this isn't a hurdle that you can't bridge or this isn't something you can't accomplish. You know, one of the resources that we have not really tapped is the military, that there are so many people that have come out of the military and have the experience and we're not giving them credit for that experience and we're able to not convert them into these great jobs. And if you're looking for a resource, uh, my son, the Coast Guard, my father's a Marine, and I hear stories about their friends and other people that get out and they struggle to get a job because they say, oh, what's your experience? And they don't think the military is an experience. And I got to tell you, man, if you're in the military, you have leadership skills you understand how to how to do it they want to get it done that day that week not like oh let's make this a summer project they are right. highly motivated individuals and a great source for you to find people and disciplined my god i mean disciplined they know they disciplined. know what it takes right, to, right. to get it done right. i think that's a great right. idea i think for the whole home performance industry there there should be some kind of specific alliance formed between maybe the building performance association and the military to create a, um, a job outplacement service or a, a training program that immediately brings people into the building performance world. I think that's fantastic. And I, I think that that would open up a broader, uh, more diverse pool of candidates to pull into this. Because there are several industries that have that, that when you actually uh, leave the military, there's like, here we go. We, we have this entire corporate, um, uh, some of which are actually car repair companies that you're very familiar with that actually are saying, you know what, we want you, please come here. We will train you right now and yep. set you up with a, a great paying job. So I think that we do need to get that. In fact, that one of our challenges in our industry is we really don't have enough people doing our industry, that yep. people don't mm. understand what it is and that this is something that HVC contractors could be uh, expanding into as to how to get, you know, a better indoor air quality and better home performance. And it's not just about the box. So I think that maybe this is a time that we also will enlighten ourselves about our homes because people are hypersensitive now about, you know, what they're breathing and what they're, they're, they're and as well as this is now their office. So I think this may be a time that people are also want to bridge that gap and make investments in their, their homes. Well, yeah. the, hope for, the Hope for Homes initiative, which is a uh, new legislation that was just introduced this week uh, in, in both the House and I believe the Senate, um, you know, is actually driving uh, to, to, act, to try to act as a stimulus for this COVID pandemic, right, to actually create more jobs, create more opportunities. Um, and, and one of the driving factors is that to help try to, try to do energy performance upgrades to deal with deal with some of the, you know, un, uh, the properties in some of the under, underserved communities. Uh, 
our, our next guest, uh, Lily Abron, when she when she's on, she's going to speak to some programs that they, she's been involved uh, at scale in the Washington, D.C. area with a uh, the solar program, uh, the all all in Washington, D.C., solar for all. Um, and there, there's it's not as simple as you think, though, you, you can't this is not. The solution sometimes there's un, unintended consequences with you know when we try to we try try to legislate a fix and you know yeah. we don't always have that answer. But let me just have, pose this question to I'm to both of you now. Uh, what's the difference between a healthy home and a, and healthy housing? You know we use those terminologies. You know and so our, uh, one of our producers, Susan Valenti, brought that asked me that question last night to be honest. And I sat there you know interrupted myself from Netflix for a minute at nine thirty at night and went. <laughs> Well, this is what it means to me, but I want to hear what you say before I, before I give my terminology. Man, I wish we'd stop using the word housing, you know, because it, it, um, it frames it like people are cattle that need to be housed somewhere. You know, it is, um, it strips you of your humanity in, in a way. And uh, I, I think we should be thinking about homes because when we think about homes as homes, I, it, it connotes a place of warmth and happiness and health and safety. So if we, if we would think about the homes we are creating, particularly for disadvantaged communities, if we were thinking about them as homes, maybe we would more naturally think about um, how do we make sure they are, they are healthy, they are resilient, uh, they are self-sustaining. Um, yeah, I wish we would stop using the word housing altogether. Joe, what's your thoughts yeah, on that? Yeah. And I'll throw yeah, my two cents in. Yeah, that's good. I agree with that. So, but th th there is this concept that those that are developing those things, the, the architects, the, the planners, they don't think there's a possibility to think about individual homes. So their concept is housing. So even if they would approach their projects as, is this working? You know, what, what's ironic is we could have, you know, a, a multiplex of uh, four-story units uh, in one section that is well-designed community and just two miles away have the same one that was you know, set up two years ago with a black community and it struggled because they didn't have the supporting factors around it. So it isn't just that you create a structure that's supportive, it's that you create a, a neighborhood and a network community. that actually yeah. a community that makes it success. And so yep. that's one of our failures. We keep going, oh, these buildings were built amazing and they could even have great indoor air quality, but yet they had no chance of actually getting reasonably uh, uh, good food without having to drive someplace right. or e even that was a challenge. So there, it's, it's not just the, the building, it's the community. Clear, yep. Clearly, you know, and the thing is, you know, when, when Susan hit me with that last night, you know, the terminology and I, and I said, again, you know, not even trying to put a bias on just saying this is how when I hear those two terms, I look at healthy home and I think of sing, single family homes. And when I hear housing, I think of multifamily. And immediately, I mean, there's a connotation there. It's dehumanizing. I'm, th I'm thinking low yeah. public housing. I mean, right. that's 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 what that connotation is to me. And, you know, and uh and you know, right or wrong, and whether that's actually the right terminology. The the point being is that I I think this goes much deeper, and this is to the core part of our discussion today. Is talking about you know how there is a form of dehumanization and racial injustice that is affecting you know the living spaces, the indoor environmental spaces of the underserved communities. I mean, it, yep. it goes right to the way we even just talk about it. Yep, I, and language is powerful. Um, you know, that's, that, that's obviously the world I work in every day, but, but words, words have power, words have meaning. And so I, I think often we can begin to correct some of the things in our society by virtue of correcting the way we talk about things and our language. And I know that, um, uh, you know, frankly, that's one of the things Trump ran on is, oh, all this political correctness, you know, let's, let's just stop doing that and start saying how it is. Um, 
you know, I, there's part of me that goes, well, yeah, I mean, you don't want to be so polite that you, um, that you then don't get your point across, but we do have to recognize that words have matter, words have uh, power and words have meaning. And so a word like housing connotes something that maybe we don't want it, it to connote. Um, and there are all kinds of other words that I think we should be mindful of and how we use them. Well, I mean, so you you deal a lot with, uh, you know, the sustainability side and the weatherization programs and mar marketing for, you know, for business owners, right? I mean, yep. that's that's part of what you do outside of doing Fortune 500s. You, you yep, also right. work with smaller businesses as well. That's right. Um, and, you know, so how, how how do you articulate, you know, like what would be, how, what has changed? Okay, I'm going to rephrase this question. Hmm. Uh, you know, two months ago, did you have a different a different message that you would convey to, let's say, a prospective small business owner of a, a billing performance company that you potentially was going to become, a, you know, a client of your agency, to what you would say now, you know, in light of the the current developments and what what's, you know, the traction that's been happening in the country. Has it changed? Well, a little, a little. I mean, I've been telling this industry as well as high performance home builders that health is a much more compelling message, and it is a it is a more compelling driver for someone to spend money to fix their oh, home yeah. um, than saving a few bucks on your energy bill. And in this industry, we have tended to want to scream, save money, save money, save money. And it's not enough of a motivator, but if I'm worried that my kid has allergies or asthma, um, I'm, I'm motivated to spend some money to fix that. So, um, so that message hasn't changed, but it's accelerated. It's like, guys, if you're not already leading with health messaging, you've really got to lean into that and you've really got to lead with that. Um, the other thing that, that I'm telling smaller business owners that, um, that really had, had lived in my purview of Fortune 500s before is you've got to talk about what you're doing for people in the community as a company. Um, it, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not enough to just talk about, well, here's the end benefit I deliver. Here's the service I deliver. You've got to talk about what you're doing as a company. So here is how I'm... Um, Here's how I'm ensuring pay equity for my employees. Here are ways in which my employees and my team are giving back to our communities. Um, here, here are ways that I'm ensuring everybody has time off to go vote, for instance. I mean, these are things that, that need to be on companies' websites because increasingly Americans want to just, they, they, want, they don't just want to buy good products or good services. They want to buy them from good companies. So as a, as a small business, it's no longer good enough to just talk about your product and service. You've got to talk about what you stand for. You've mentioned that in the past about COVID that some companies were very rude about how they uh, let go of employees and <laughs> that showed up in social media and others were were uh, either humane about it and right. um, you know and the other people caught on to that so th there was a an upside of the down as to how you handled the challenge exactly. you had as a business so um, let me introduce our new our guest yeah so I'd like to introduce uh, our other guest panelist today um, Dr. Lilia Abron. Uh, she's a professional engineer and she is president and CEO of Peer Consultants, the largest black female owned and operated environmental engineering firm in the United States. Dr. Abron's experience spans almost 50 years in planning, managing, and directing environmental engineering programs for the improvement, maintenance, and enhancement of the natural and built environments. She is the first African-American woman in the nation to earn a PhD in chemical engineering and the first wow. African-American to start an engineering consulting firm focused on the environment and its environmental issues. She was also one of the first professionals in the field to, to both suggest and demonstrate that sustainability initiatives can rapidly advance the condition of the impoverished sector worldwide. She's also founder of Peer Africa, an innovative design, build, and sustainable development company. In uh, we're we're in South Africa. It's in South Africa, right? Uh, well, we are working in about uh, 
most of the provinces, but primarily in um, the Northern Cape province, KwaZulu, Natal, and Hauteng. Well, it's a pleasure to have you join us today, Lilia. I, I so I mean, you have you have uh, just just a wealth of experience and uh, knowledge in the industry, um, and we'll we'll let you elaborate on some of that. I just want to uh, I, I had the opportunity to watch a TEDx talk that you did in Memphis, um, which, by the way, was uh, quite moving. And you know, one of the points that you brought up, I think, that was one of the key points, is that the energy burden, the energy cost burden, and the energy poverty. Uh, you know, uh, that there, there seems to be just a disproportional uh, effect, and, and that seems to be a large effect. So, so let's elaborate on that a little bit you, to, okay, to the heart of your TED talk. Can we finish? I was interested <laughs> okay. in the COVID conversation because I just left. reason why I was late joining is that I'm dealing with some COVID issues right now. And... Um, I would like for us to finish that. And I would like to say that because my company did apply for the PPP and we did get it, that one of the things as a part of that is that you really should not be laying off your employees if you can not do that. And right. that's part of the PPP you should have added in what your payroll costs are. Well, that was the purpose of it. That's the purpose. <laughs> That's right. And um, we had a glitch uh, and we did not, we laid off someone for a week, but only because their job was to answer the phone. Uh, but then after we got the PPP, we brought them right back back on and so we kind of found other things to keep that person working because we have automated things where the phone rings so many times and if it does you don't pick it up it goes to your cell phone but we were able to find other things to do and now we have a job that's finishing and I still refuse to lay that person off. So we're just going to have to find something else to do, especially when unemployment, I mean, you just, it's too many people trying to get That's on. Right. So I wanted us to, because if we are ethical companies, which That's is right. what we're talking about, Absolutely. and sustainable companies, then we have to find a way to be ethical and sustainable even if that means those of us at the top have to take a hit. That's right. As we should, honestly. I mean, yeah. that, that's what there is to do. Um, and I, I completely agree with you. What, what we found um, as, as we've talked with people that have uh, you know, borne the brunt of, of all the economic devastation, um, what we see is it, it's also not just about the company doing everything they can to keep people, but in the cases where they just you know, like restaurants that were shut down for eight to 12 weeks and like literally can't, can't continue to make payroll when there's no revenue coming in. There is a way to do it. Um, uh, one, one of the examples that comes to mind and, and one uh, American that we talked to is, um, listen, I was let go, but 
but my company allowed me to keep my computer and my company and cell phone as a, as, as a good faith measure that as soon as, as soon as we can open back up, we're, we're going to bring you back. And you know, you can feel secure that we're coming back for you because we've left you the phone and the computer. It's, you know, it's, it's like that. So that, that is a way to do it where you're, you're, you have empathy and compassion and, and skin in the game. Um, you know, the way to not do it is, you know, in a tweet or an email and uh, unbelievably that has been happening. There are some business mm-hmm. owners who have just, you know, kind of unceremoniously let people go um, or just stop making payroll. Um, and, you know, you got you to gotta know, guys, that that stuff gets blown up on social media. I mean, mm-hmm. so you can't do that. You, you've exactly as Lily said, you've got to first try to keep them. And if you can't, you've got to be human in how you uh, and how you let people go. But I mean, there also seems to be that a lot of people that were deemed essential workers also seem to be people of color. And they were the people that had to go, you know, they, they didn't have the opportunity to not be in the front line. Of, of this COVID thing. And you look at what, you know, just like yeah. places like New York city, the epicenter, um, they didn't have, you know, the, it, there didn't seem to be a lot of, you know, I'm going to be honest here, a lot of, you know, white collar, white workers sitting there do, doing, doing the tasks that nobody wants to do, you know, and right. this is, this is to all people of color seem, seem to be the ones kept on the front line, right in the, right in the forefront of this. And, and, and not only you're going to find this a little bit more, just what I do, Municipal engineering, water waste, water hazardous waste, we are considered essential. Mm. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I tell people, I said, I'm just a double whammy everywhere that you turn around. <laughs> I'm, Afro- I'm African American, I'm senior, and a woman my yeah. is considered essential. So I have people in the field every day. I mean, it's just really. Very, very interesting, but we have people who are doing um, water and wastewater treatment plan operations. We have people who are doing construction management of wastewater treatment plants, everything that's essential and we're considered essential workers. So our people are out there in the field every day Many of us, and we still have a lot of us, us engineers who sit at a desk, we're at a desk, but we're still working. So even though we're working from home, most of my people are still working, but I am dealing with some COVID issues in the field. Yep. One of the things I don't think the small businesses really acknowledge is the amount it costs to find somebody, hire them, train them. That is a significant a part of their budget that is not really allocated as a budget. They're like, oh, we'll just get somebody else and not realizing that, that there's a significant cost. It is so much cheaper to retain somebody, even if you have to figure out a way to politely you know, put them on furlough or do something, knowing that you're acknowledging them and I need you back um, is some way to you know, get them to stay committed to you is also in the long run. And if, I think that's an overlooked issue. If businesses are able to do that, some businesses cannot. We are lucky to be engineers and we're lucky to be in a field that we're talking about today where we're needed. Yep. But hey. I think some people want to be a part of their company still, even if they understand that uh, I, I may not be getting paid here, but we you still have maybe a once a me- month meeting or something to just say that we yeah. want to find out how to, what's going on with you. And you're still part of us, even though financially this is a challenge. I think that there are, there are things that were could be done right now that were 
a little fuzzy about or people are afraid to commit to them and saying, well, I want you to come on a meeting, but I can't pay you. I think that, you know, if they don't want to come. That's okay. But I think they want to still be attached to this company that they've already spent their life with. Yep. Um, well, hey, Bob, I wanted to ask Lily something about what we were talking about earlier. So if I'm totally hijacking Stop Go for it. We'll Go right ahead. Right you've noticed that we're a fairly free flow format here. So that's a, that's that's not a problem. So so Lilia, we were talking before you joined about um, the home performance industry. So people that go into folks' homes and improve the energy efficiency and indoor quality of those homes. It is overwhelmingly middle-aged white guys uh, that, that do this work. Um, I, I see it. I speak at a lot of these conferences, and that's who I see in my audiences. I've had a lot of these folks through my houses, and that's who I see. So the question I was asking that I don't have an answer to, and I wonder if you have any insight, what could this industry do to proactively pull in people of color, all, all people of color? What, what could we do? And women, by the way. What could we do to create true diversity inside the home performance industry? Do you have any thoughts on what can be done to pull in folks? Or even the, the your engineering. So that's a similar field that has the same kind of bunch of white guys like Bob and I dominating. <laughs> Smarter ones, but nonetheless, we, they look the same. <laughs> Let's talk about, uh, she sounds like she's talking a little bit, not much, but part of his home performance by Energy Star. And a couple other things. We've solved that problem again in the Washington metropolitan area. Uh, we have very... Um, very at proactive energy efficiency programs in Washington, D.C., in Prince George's County, Montgomery, in the surrounding area. And we have uh, diversity programs that are being enforced. So we have these certifications, MBEs, CBEs, SWANA, all of right. this. And a lot of them are not color base like CBE says if you're headquartered in the District of Columbia and you're legitimate, then you're CBE and we're going to try and push as much of our funds to CBEs as we do to other firms. So in the we have in Washington DC something called the Sustainable Energy Utility. Mm -hmm. It's not a utility, it's not a regulated utility, it's a program management contract. Yep. So the purpose is to push energy efficiency for all of the rate player payers in the District of Columbia. So that's right. private, residential, everything. So for a lot of the work that's done, the construction work, as part of the DCSEU, there are a group of contractors who are then turned to if you need light bulbs changed, HVAC repair, right. do all of this. You first come to these CBEs. Yep. So you have to be certified in order to get this work. And we have a tremendous number of non-white construction and non-male construction companies who are a part of this. So how did you do that? How'd you create that? How'd you get all those non-white folks? Because we have the businesses in DC. Mm -hmm. We have them. And then we said in order to participate in this program, you must be a CBE. Got it. So then, and I can tell you, we have a lot of white construction companies as well. And people have moved into DC 
headquartered in DC so they can get CBE certification yep. because for the most part the district is trying to be fair and trying to be consistent. But we have those industries in DC, it's a metropolitan area. In the Washington mm -hmm. metropolitan area, you have the skills, you have an environment where people tend to want to spread the work around. But the one thing I have to say is we have the companies here. It's mm -hmm. where you don't have those companies. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's where Job Corps comes in. Mm -hmm. But you have to have a willingness to want to hire those firms. Yep. You either have to have the willingness or you have to be um, nudged. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, you know, so it's interesting, you know, you know, many of the times the energy or the solar programs, you know, that are aimed at low and moderate income people, right, to save money, don't exactly produce the intended results, right? And, and I know, Lilia, you, uh, you, you were involved with the Solar for All in Washington, D.C., and that, that's, that's a program that was intended to write to lower energy costs for uh, pe people, people in people underserved housing. Yeah, 80% AMI and less. Mm. That's what the Solar for All program is geared towards. Uh, and we reduce, it's supposed to reduce your energy bill by at least 50% per year. They're very strict on that program here in the district, extremely strict. It's difficult only in the sense that a lot of people who are 80% AMI and less and those who are on the lower, they don't want to give you their paperwork mm -hmm. because you have to prove 80% AMI. So some of us have found it difficult to get some people enrolled in the program because they don't trust government. Mm -hmm. They don't know what you're going to do with their paperwork or how it's mm. going to be handled. But Bob, for the most part, that program is working. The, the more difficult part of that program is getting the real estate to put the panels on the roof. Mm. Because in some cases, what it's costing to repair the roof is probably more than what yes. you get now. Program. Just from the structural capacity, being able to actually support that extra weight up there. Yeah, yeah. and um, it's a grant. It's not uh, a contract. So you're working within the confines of the grant. So a lot of firms are not really set up to work under grants. So that's another issue. But for those companies who have people on the street knocking on doors every day and finding people who say, yes, I'll do it, then they've been very successful, but it's more successful among those companies that have people on the street just knocking on doors, knocking on doors. We ended up working with a company that's set up for that kind of work to implement our program. But it is, it is working. The thing I, I find a little annoying about the program is that it's paid for by ratepayers. Mm. 
I'm a ratepayer, <laughs> but I, I'm not 80% AMI less. What about us? Right. So, so I, yeah. Huh? I want I want to elaborate because um I I worked with a large group in California. You could imagine what group I could be mentioning, <laughs> and they wanted to reach out to their community that they were clearly impacting because their homes are now worth a million dollars, but they don't want to move and can't actually upgrade uh, upkeep it. So they wanted to be like, let's get solar panels on a bunch of houses near us. This would be a great marketing opportunity for us that we're working with the community. So this group gave $100,000, which was very generous. But when I look at the amount of money these groups make, it was a fraction. Uh, and we were able yeah. to improve about 35 homes with that type of money. But most of that was actually funding sources around them. But I think the point here is that there are some large entities that are working with these communities. Those communities are reaching out back to them. And I think it's time that they get forced to step up and be like, let's give back to the community because it only gives them, as, as Suzanne will point out, what a mark, amazing marketing opportunity this is for you to show this is the time to step up and make your community better. So I wish that those kind of corporations would realize now's the time to show that we actually can put this back into the community. And, and they are. Uh, infrastructure, though, the ability to accept so many green electrons is also an issue. Mm -hmm. so, and then whether or not the utility is going to accept those green electrons is also another issue that we are dealing with from day to day. They have to strengthen, they have to increase their capacity to take on more green electrons. And then they also have to clean their grid. How long does it take to clean it from, you know, coal and gas and all of that to green? So there are many issues, but, you know, we're getting there in terms of solar, we, we will get there. We do quite a bit of that and we will well, get there. There is another major savings and that comes with improving the, the home, making it healthier because the health savings and energy savings go along together without the solar on top of the house. They tend to coincide. Yeah. yeah, but the health savings are huge for that type of community that if they do have an issue, talk about something that would just really crush you is when you get a bill that is $10,000 and you're like, uh, now I have no idea how to how to turn to this. So I think there are other ways besides just solar that can reach out, reach back out to the community. And, and a lot of times solar is just really not the answer, but you can still solve the problem. Or but it's a shiny, it's a shiny marketing tool that makes the, everybody look great. You know, yeah. it, it sounds like it's saving, you know, the, the planet and yeah. With me, I mean, I buy green electrons. I'm sure I don't get them, but I buy them. So I'm putting green electrons on the grid, but there are other ways to improve homes so that they are energy efficient. And it doesn't necessarily have to be with solar panels. I mean, we have quite a few projects that we've done in South Africa and I wanna do over here for solar wasn't necessarily the answer, but if we could start from scratch and what we call a greenfield passive solar, which is finally picking back up here in the US now, more and more homes are being passive solar design and built. Yep. And you can, you can build that home. So 
everything is just so energy efficient and you don't really need solar if you can't get it, but you can also buy solar as part of a community project where you are buying and to what they call a craft or whatever. So you're buying it, even though your electrons may not necessarily be that, but you are buying your power from someplace where they are putting- so you're, con you're contributing to the overall, because the grid's right. obviously a shared, shared source. Yeah. Well, you know, uh -oh. let me ask this question because, you know, we're in, an interesting time and an interesting, I, I use that word, uh, that's probably the total wrong word, but we're, we're, at a, we're at a point where this is a pivotal time, perhaps in this country, uh, in light of, in light of the pandemic, in light of, you know, the whole George Floyd thing, which honestly is just, you know, hopefully will serve as a catalyst for something positive, some change to be affected. But so, you know, how, how in these sectors, you know, and, and I'm going to pose this to both uh, you, Lilia and Suzanne, how do we, how do we capitalize or how do we, how do we seize this moment in, in history where there's, there's really a lot of things being brought to the forefront, you know, and the racial inequality, racial injustice seems to have a lot to do with how people of color are being affected by this pandemic, how, you know, we have systemic issues that have caused, you know, inequality in housing and, 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 you know, and all of that. And what do we, what are the steps? Where, where, where do we go now? What do we do? How, how do we not lose? There's an opportunity. How do we not lose this opportunity to actually make positive change, substantive change? Well, I'm trying to write a paper right now on super spreaders and the relationship being an environmental engineer the first super spreader that we really came in contact with was Typhoid Mary. And it was a, the beginning of sanitary engineering because it was a civil engineer that did that epidemiological study who identified Typhoid Mary. And between the time that we identified and we had preventive measures, which is called washing your hands, um, it was, uh, we didn't get a vaccine until like 1948. So it was maybe 50 years of dealing with typhoid before we were able to get uh, a vaccine for it. Again, it came back to, she had a bacteria, typhoid, which is not a virus. But again, it was sanitation, which is what we practice all the time. Now we have this, Supreme Court judge up in Wisconsin, I believe, who said, well, it's not all of us, it's just those people over there in the packing house. Uh -huh. And then we have this, this senator, this congressman, who said, a physician, he's a medical doctor, who said, well, there's a reason why uh, African-Americans are dying at such an alarming rate with COVID-19 is because they don't practice good sanitation. Aren't you happy he's not your physician? That's yes. just awful. Uh, you know, and, and the, the fact that, you know, <laughs> totally disregarding the fact that, you know, African-Americans are largely in, or, you know, a good part of that community is in housing that is substandard and has environmental conditions that totally affect the outcome of your result from that virus. I mean- and we're on the front line. The people in the packing house are on the front line. 
They are what's called, quote, essential. So what I'm trying to do is to say, we now have the opportunity where people are bringing their raw racism to the forefront, to, to, as an engineer to say, this has nothing to do with the color of someone's skin. Right. This is all about health, preventive measures, health measures, which goes back to what I do as an engineer and to what Suzanne does as policy and writing it down. And if we can get people to start understanding that it's good practices, health, sanitation, using your senses, reading what the scientists tell us to do and do it, then we can get out of this. So Bob, what I'm saying, I've just been so alarmed and I've been trying to move from putting a paper on typhoid, Mary, a super spreader to what's going on now and said it boils down to in my world, a proper sanitation and good health measures. And it's if we can keep shouting that, that it has nothing to do, the virus doesn't know what color you are, anything else. Right. It's, to do so it can transmit. Right. We've just basically set up a set up environments where people of color are more in uh, in uh, the exposed path of this uh, pandemic. Suzanne, I want to give you a twist before you uh, give your response. Yeah. And that is that there's also the similar conditions where Native Americans, uh, Hispanics, and Blacks also have a much higher rate of asthma, right? So mm -hmm. now the issue is actually starting in their housing. So we're, we're here talking about like, well, we should hire more people of color and Blacks and do these things. But the reality is that it, these things are fundamental in terms of their housing as a child. So why don't you comment on that it, it, it isn't something we can change right now. This is something we have to figure out a way to shift the future so that those kind of things are not a common condition for somebody who has a different skin color. And it has brought that to the forefront. And that's what I think. And I am so happy because it's health. It goes back to your health, the way you were raised, what you were exposed to in South Africa. All the children over there in the townships, their noses are running, they're coughing. That's because of the fuels they're using for cooking and heating and right. dirty fuels. They have particulates in them and their lungs are in It's health. It's yep. healthy homes, healthy environment. I, I would be so bold as to say, let me, let me broaden it and say, in this country, we don't take care of our poor people. Um, and so look at the opioid, opioid ap uh, epidemic. Um, all right, so I, I might say that's disproportionately white than, than people of color, but it's, it's poor people. It's people that don't feel like they have hope, they don't have a way, they don't have the housing, the counseling, the social structure. Um, they're, they're in rural communities where, it, where you talked about this earlier, Bob, they don't, they don't have access to community, they don't have access to grocery stores with healthy food. You know? And so then, then let's broaden that from there and, and look at housing. So this does disproportionately affect people of color. We, we put poor people in housing that is substandard. And I'm using the word housing on purpose now. Uh, Lilia, before you joined, we had this discussion about uh, healthy housing versus healthy homes. And it's a very demeaning term that we use very 
regularly, unfortunately. And so I'm, I'm using it intentionally here because yeah, this is how we systemically think about it is, oh, well, we have to house these people. So let's just build them something. And Lily, we talked about this before the, the session started today. It's like, we, we don't think about, look, these are human beings and how do we, how to create homes for them that are going to be healthy and that give them an opportunity to thrive. Um, and, and you mentioned Native Americans. I mean, same deal. We, we, we are putting poor people into situations where it's, it's difficult, nearly impossible to get out of. If they don't have access to education, they don't have access to health, they don't have access to community, to grocery stores, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How in the hell are you supposed to dig your way out of it? And so that yawning gap between the rich and the poor is just destined to keep getting bigger if we don't solve it. Now, I, I tend to be an optimist. Um, what I hope, and you said this earlier, Bob, what I hope is that as we are now awakened anew to the systemic racism in our country, what I hope is that we can have some really meaningful conversations about homes. Um, because I think where people go is, okay, we got to fix police violence um, and we got to fix uh, pay equity and inequity. I don't know that that homes and the, the air quality in homes immediately comes to mind. So I think that is something that this industry can do is to point out, look, part of our systemic racism is that we tend to put people, um, uh, uh, lower income folks that are disproportionately people of color, we tend to put them in homes that have terrible indoor air quality and we're making them sick. So and we have to the stop water. doing that. And you know, the we're water. poisoning the children with lead. Yep. So we you have know? to stop doing that. It's systemic racism. That's part of it. it. It totally is. It totally is. Just look, look at the communities that have the worst lead problems typically. I mean, it, right. there's this isn't happening by chance. This isn't random. This has been systemically, you know, I, I, I'm going there. I mean, we, this has been a systemic issue in this country since, uh, since uh, you know, uh, ah, anyway, it's just. So, so I brought up a quick slide. I know you're familiar with this kind of stuff, uh, Suzanne, and uh, uh, so that what it's showing is that we, as United States, spend more on healthcare and less on social services that allow you to stay healthy. Right. Um, and yeah. that, this is the, this is the gap that's causing us to have so many issues and it is exasperating why COVID is spreading besides other factors. But in general, we are not doing a great job of supporting our communities with secondary things that aren't just, you know, um, healthcare that costs too much and uh, isn't really adequate. Right. It's like we'd rather keep people in conditions that makes them sick which then drives our healthcare costs up. And then nationally, we want to bitch about how much uh, healthcare costs. It's like, well, what if we just well, kept people healthy? What if we just Well, it's, yeah, <laughs> Look, we're in a for-profit healthcare uh, system, which incentivizes treating people rather than keeping people healthy. I mean, right. we, we could take this conversation and go for four hours <laughs> here, but it's a truth. I mean, it, it, that's, and I think what this illustrates in, in, from what I'm seeing is, you know, we come in here for an hour on this topic and this topic is so deep and so deep rooted. But at least maybe, maybe we're at a point now, maybe, and I hope, I hope we are, we're at another one of those points where this can be a catalyst to actually, you know, drive some change. And I, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope well, so. Well, one of the things that I, I think we all found shocking was that um, I think COVID, everybody creeped up in their houses to be like, holy cow, I can't believe what I just saw on TV. I've got to go speak my mind. And if we weren't, you know, inside our home so much or like cooped up. We may not have had such a strong reaction. So uh, unfortunately, it may take some child dying of asthma and poor indoor quality at a, at a, or several of them. It, it, it may take something like that for us to all say, holy cow, we need to step up and fix this also. So I hope that we may use this time as action for housing. But unfortunately, it may take some you know, social thing that explodes as to, wow, we didn't realize how bad this was. 
let's start fixing housing on another level. And I think that if we have a change of uh, ownership of our United States, maybe we have the opportunity to do that. So maybe that's our goal is there's, there's other reasons uh, besides some of the obvious ones to, to shift gears. Well, I mean, the first step, I believe, is admitting that, it, it, you know, calling out these issues because they, they haven't even been mentioned. I mean, I, right. I've been in the IQ industry for 30, almost 35 years now. Nobody, I've never seen a presentation at a conference I've been at in the last 30 plus years to, uh, having right. this discussion. Never. Uh, we it's, talk about it healthy homes, but that's okay. Well, I mean, we we do on this show and we do in the magazine, but I mean, the point is, is like, this is this is a time for you know, this enough is enough, and things have to things have to get better because this isn't this is not sustainable. What we're doing is not sustainable. That's right, um, Bob. I just like to add, you know, they didn't really care if they turned the water off in homes. They really didn't care if you didn't pay your bill. They turned your water off, but this pandemic made them turn the water back on. Mm -hmm. So they made them start approaching a healthy home again by turning the water off in a home. What have you done? We don't even have to think about indoor air quality. What have you done Right. when you have turned the water off? Sanitation is out. It's over. It's over. Right. Yeah. It's over. So people are sick, but this pandemic made them turn the water back on and it's gonna make people, as you say, start thinking about everything else that it takes to have a healthy home, not a so house. It is that time of our hour that I am forced, be the one forced to ask you. So I'm gonna give you kind of a, a specific question and hopefully you can give them brief. Give me something that is positive I'm going to end on a positive note. So what's the one thing that you see that's actually positively happening uh, based upon our new social awareness with the black community? So what's one thing you're like, you know what, this has been a great thing and I'm hoping to see more of it. Su Suzanne, why don't you go first? The Black Lives Matter and the protests in the streets and all have been extremely positive because I was a 1960 eras person and we worked hard and it fizzled. But I am so encouraged by the diversity mm. of what I see and the age. Yep. The yep. age. That's very positive for me. Great comment, Suzanne. Well, and I, I want to piggyback on that. I think if you look at um, a lot of the social problems that have been solved around the world, um, they do tend to get solved by energy from young people. Um, so I, I think that is what it takes. And by the way, I don't want this to be like a burden for young people. It drives me nuts when uh, folks our age go, oh, well, you know, Gen Z will fix this or the millennials will fix it. It's like, you know what, it's our problem. It shouldn't be on them to fix it. Um, but I think it takes their energy uh, to, to help us get it fixed, right? Um, you know, what I think is positive is that a lot of business owners uh, like me are newly awakened and newly dedicated to how can I more proactively solve some of these problems in, in, my, in my own organization and in my world? Um, I, I'll actually tell you the best, the best, most positive thing. Corporate America CEOs have gotten the memo that when there is a social issue happening, they are now expected to comment on it, which was like not a thing you did 10 mm -hmm. years ago. So they've gotten the message that they're supposed to comment on it. But what's great is that as all these CEOs have kind of 
uh, you could almost make a Mad Lib script for them, like fill in the blank of their their company, but say these things about, you know, we stand with Black Lives Matter and social injustice is wrong. Like they, they all sound the same. Yes. What's great is that people on social media are are jumping back. Oh, great. How many black people do you have on your executive mm -hmm. team? How many black people do you have on your board? So I think that's fantastic that CEOs are getting called on the carpet um, for, for what's right there under their noses. And I think that is going to drive change because frankly, it's personally embarrassing for a lot of those CEOs. Um, and they, they don't they don't like being called on the carpet. So I think we're going to see some change simply because they've gotten out there and said a thing and people have challenged them on it. So I think that's a positive. My, my brief positive was I was shocked at how fast communities were responding to these issues from changing names to removing statues, stuff that I really thought would take a, you know, act of God to do some of those things were happening faster than you even thought of. Like suddenly we're talking about these things came down like, wow, I didn't even realize that that was something that people were asking for. They were proactive about changing how they appeared to their community. I thought that was one of the, the surprise bonuses that have happened to the people protesting uh, in a positive way. I mean, yeah. um, protesting those things for the longest mm -hmm. and it just went and finally this was the tipping point yep and made it happen yep. yeah and i think it's really important that this you know this impetus it, it, we we continue to drive this forward because it, it could also be a, a a sadly lost opportunity if, oh, if, 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 if it fizzles. And uh, I, but I don't know, I think, you know, maybe there is a critical mass now, you know, the combination of, you know, the, the global climate imperative that, you know, the, the pandemic and probably subsequent pandemics that we're about to be faced as a result of what we're doing in the environment and the ecology. And, and the, the fact that a lot of this stuff is really deep rooted in the racial inequality of the, the you know, the founding fathers of this country. And just, and we, we you have to, it, it, they're not separate. They're not separate silos. This right. is, this is all, this is, things have to change. You know, so. Right. Well, two years ago, we had a bunch of women step forward to run for office. I'm hoping that we have a large black community step forward and get involved and run for office. I think that's the one thing that we're looking for. It's too late now to, for them to have gotten this race, but two years from now is when you start planning for those kind of things. So, Well, the big yeah. thing, I mean, let's face it, the big thing is we should, our, our elected officials should, should really demographically represent the population of the country, you know, thereabouts, right? It should at least be similar. <laughs> Yeah, 50% of the population are female. You know, yep. uh, you know there's, I mean, it's time for it's time for the old old uh, white boys club to be done. That needs yep. to end. It just does. I just want to do a shout out. So uh, Suzanne and Dr. Everyone, uh, I appreciate what you do and how you motivate other women of any color to <laughs> step up and be an equal because that is, you know, we didn't talk about women's issues here. It was mostly a, a different type of topic, but I got to tell you that in all industries that you are undervalued. And so we appreciate you taking the lead on a variety of stuff where we normally see a bunch of white guys like us. So uh, thank That's you. And I hope that more people motivate are motivated by your cause. Thank you. And we d definitely appreciate you taking the time out of your busy days to join us here on the show. Um, we'll, we'll be, uh, again, this uh, upcoming issue of Healthy Endures uh, Digital Edition, which will be out in the next day or two, uh, we'll have uh, Suzanne's, um, Suzanne's 
uh, blog post that really started started the impetus for this conversation, as well as uh, we're going to feature the uh, the YouTube video from Dr. Uh, Abrams' uh, TED TEDx talk. No, it was great. I, honestly, it was a fantastic TEDx talk. That was some of the best nine minutes of uh, focused topic I've seen in a long time. So so they'll both be in Healthy Indoors Magazine. Um, shout out to Joe here again. Joe, uh, Joe works uh, with Hayward Score, which tell us about it. Yeah, so briefly, it's a free online survey tool that helps you assess if your home is impacting your health. And we give you advice on how to improve the healthiness of your home, which also improves your health and uh, makes a, a happier family and a, a better lifestyle. So you can get that at haywardstore.com forward slash tool gets you our new 2.0 version. Again, Hayward score forward slash tool. There you go. Thank you. Excellent. I'm not even going to make the comment that I, I could have made, but um, jo Joe, as always, yeah, pleasure having you here. Um, so um, I guess we'll do a plug for Healthy Indoors Magazine now, right? Because uh, that's a, so every week we do this live Healthy Indoors show. We started doing it back in March, uh, really in response to the COVID pandemic. Um, Joe's showing us a crazy screen here. I'm seeing all this PowerPoint from staying up too oh, late sorry, last night. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, wow, that is crazy. <laughs> nice yeah, nice screen there, buddy. Uh, <laughs> Been active, anyway. active last night, sorry. Yeah, yeah Joe, Joe has no sleep. Joe works. Joe literally works incessantly. Uh, I sleep a little, but I have deep bags under my eyes. Uh, but anyway, uh, the, the Healthy Indoors show, as uh, as well as the uh, Healthy Indoors magazine, are free. Uh, they're free and available. They're available at healthyindoors.com. Uh, we, we are doing this show live streamed every Thursday from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern time. Um, the recordings are available on the site at that tab, the HI show tab. There's also an audio podcast of all our shows, so that's available. It'll be Today's show will be available in a couple of hours, so it takes a little while to get it up there. Um, but in any event, um, I greatly appreciate uh, bo both of our uh, experienced, knowledgeable guests here on a topic that, honestly, uh, as, uh, as a white male in the industry, and you know, Joe and I will both attest to this, is like, we, we can't have your perspective. We, we can't. Um, we're trying to learn, you know, that's the best I can say. Um, so thank you so very much um, for Healthy Indoors Magazine and Healthy Indoors Show. I'm Bob Krell. Uh, we'll see you next Thursday from 1 to 2 p.m. Please, in the, in the meantime, please stay healthy. Please stay safe. And honestly, please do something to, to make positive change in this world. Because we really, we really do need to take action. It comes down to all of us. So we'll see you next wear, week. Wear a damn mask. Yeah, wear yeah, wear, wear your mask. mask. Stop, you know, stop arguing about the mask, please. Right. Stop it. Right. That's your, that's your bare minimum responsibility. Right. I mean, come on. Anyway, with that note, we'll we'll see y'all next week.